0: From our newsroom in London, this is The Standard. This edition is a preview of the latest episode of Brave New World, a podcast where Evgeny Lebedev speaks to leading experts about the latest trends in modern medicine and how to maximise health and longevity. To hear the whole interview and listen to previous episodes, search Brave New World Evening Standard on your podcast provider. This summer, I traveled to Costa Rica for, amongst other things, a stem cell treatment, but that's for another episode. I also happened to have attended a psychedelic retreat, a rather brilliant place called Soltara in the Nicoya Peninsula. There, accompanied by two Shipibo traditional healers from the indigenous peoples of Peru and 18 other patients, we took our psychedelic of choice, ayahuasca. David Nutt is a clinical psychologist and the godfather of the field of psychedelic therapy. I've spoken to him before on my podcast, Brave New World, and I'm delighted to welcome him back. Before we go into my experience, I'd be really interested just to hear from you about the studies that you've done with DMT.
1: We started off studying psilocybin because it's a... We know it's very safe. It's been widely used. Millions of young people have been eating magic mushrooms in Britain for decades. So it was, you know, it was safe. And then we moved on to LSD because, of course, that's the, the one that is most famous, the one that put psychedelia on the map through the you know, the writings of Hoffman and um and Aldous Huxley, etc. And then we thought, well, we better make sure this is a, a general phenomenon. So then we started to work with DMT. Now we couldn't work with ayahuasca because Ayahuasca is a, a herbal mixture. It was probably going to be impossible to get permission because the regulators, the MHRA, would say, "Ah, oh, no, you, know, you can't prove what's in it. So we used pure DMT. And because if you take your pure DMT, it's broken down in the liver. You, we had to give it intravenously. So that's what we did. And, the, and then we found it produced this profound alteration in consciousness in the same way as psilocybin and, uh, and but more. More quickly, and we can see that if we inject DMT into someone, into their vein, yeah, within seconds, they're having a trip, and you can see that their, their EEG is completely changed. It's fragmented, and that's what you get after an hour with psilocybin already. So they all produce this same profound disruption of rhythmicity in the brain, synchrony in the brain. It's a state we call entropy. It's a, a state of disorganization, which explains the hallucinations, because your brain can't reconstruct the external world as it used to. It explains the insights. It explains a sense of floating away into different parts of um, space or to different dimensions because your brain isn't able to work out exactly where you are in space anymore. So, so that perturbation of underlying rhythmic activity is, uh, is very profound. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, ayahuasca, one has to admit, as a psychopharmacologist uh, of the current century you have to admire and respect the amazing insights that those indigenous peoples of the Amazon basin they made one of the most fascinating psychopharmacological cocktails that's ever been made of course the shamans say this was something given to them you know from heaven this was a some, you know, an insight that was achieved through you know getting in touch with their gods and how it arrived one doesn't know but what 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 it is it's a, it's a cocktail of two separate plants, which are brewed together. One of the plants contains DMT, which, as I've already said, if you take orally it doesn't work because the liver breaks it down. But the other plant contains what we call a beta-carboline called harmine. Haramine blocks the breakdown of DMT. So ayahuasca is a drinkable form of DMT. It's the same as drinking mushroom tea, muddy mushroom tea. It produces it allows the the dmt to get into the body get to work and that's why it's uh it's gives you much longer trips and why it can be used and you know it's very easy to calibrate you can take a large cup or a small cup i don't know why you took maybe you took several cups
0: <laughs> well this is this was over over a number of days i went to a an ayahuasca retreat in costa rica called soltara which was brilliant. It was probably one of the strangest things I've ever done in my life, if not the strangest. Parallel to this, I just felt that I've, um, in the last two, three years, I've gone into this. I, I've been calling it a sort of hamster wheel or a Ferris wheel. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't quite, quite yes. get get off. It was, it was a, a, a loop of thoughts and activities that were obviously some kind of coping mechanism, and I just. I had to do something to, to break it down. And I've tried all sorts of things that people would do to, to um, just stop and rest, and yeah. they just weren't working.
1: The hamster wheel is a, an extremely good analogy because, because actually kind of how the brain works. Once it starts doing things, it can't stop. You know, my fight or
0: flight mode has been extremely alert. I've been, I've, I felt like I've been tense. And I, I suppose if you are, Persistently uh, feel like you're under attack, uh, which I have been bas- baselessly uh, by various media outlets. I say baselessly because it's all ba- it's it's all been based on rumor and innuendo, hearsay, and absolutely no fact or proof. Uh, and so it's put me in this sort of fight or flight tense mode that I just could not get out of, and I just felt like I had some, I had to find some kind of sledgehammer to break it. And this certainly was that. Um, I mean, the the first part, of course, for me was was a huge, I suppose a huge therapeutic process in itself was being in a group because I'm such a solitary, isolationist individual, and always have been all my life. And uh, the group was mostly American. And just hearing, you know, of course, I, I can't break the the confidentiality of the circle, and um, you know, there were some very grueling stories told there. But even it was just humbling being there and, and hearing the stories of people's lives and, and the, the the torment and and the pain people have gone through. You know, even that in itself is is, is somehow healing. Yeah, them. indeed yeah and so there were four ceremonies and even after the first ceremony which i took a small dose i already felt like that loop like that uh, hamster wheel stopped uh yeah. and that was the first time i felt that in probably years so it definitely yes. works there, there were lots and lots of things which we don't have time to go to all of them but but um and you know, some of the more curious things that came to mind were my surgery came uh, to me, I was three months old and I, have a, I, I had a, I think it's called an, an intestinal intersection when, when, yeah. the, when, when the intestines get entangled and I was, operate, yeah. I was operated on. And of course I have no recollection of this whatsoever apart from a huge car on my, on my belly. Yes. But I had this vision of, of being in a 1980 surgical Theater in, in Moscow, which would be very kind of yeah. austere, bright lights, a doctor yeah. wearing a, a doctor's hat and a, and a mask and, and an old school mirror on the, on, uh, on the forehead. Um, and then it all fades out. And it was, it was I guess it brought back feelings of fear. and am
1: uh, not surprised. Yes. Was, I mean, it's uh, well, you could have died. I mean, that, in, that kind of interception is, you know, very serious if you does not get it. You- you didn't get it operated on. You could have died, and uh, you were. It was always seeing massive physiological as well as emotional stress, which you've. I guess you've not thought about much since. Had you ever thought about it since? Or this- I've never.
0: I, I felt that somehow. Physically, physiologically, perhaps the scar blocks things off because it is a very big scar that I have, definitely a very Soviet scar. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I've not not thought about that at
1: all. This is, you're touching on something that to me has become really quite central to to my thinking about the the nature of trauma and the nature and how psychedelics can help trauma because it, it seems to me that it trauma in childhood does lay down patterns of thinking that are very difficult to erase and which distort your relationships for the rest of your lives. And, uh, and psychedelics may be the only way we can actually really get to terms with them because they're so deeply ingrained.
0: Yes, yes, it seems that way. I mean, I could, I don't, I don't think any number of psychotherapy or any other therapy would ever tap that deeply into my three-month-old self. And then the other thing exactly. that came up again, what the shamans, the healers would call ancestral trauma, um, epigenetic Indeed. trauma, is I had this, my family all lived in, in Moscow in the 1930s, and that was a time of great terror, where people were terrified, and I had this, vision of a moscow commute, a communal flat yeah just to explain to listeners in, in that time in the 1920s and 30s and in the soviet union uh many people lived in communal flats which were flats confiscated from wealthy merchants mm-hmm. and um and just gentry aristocracy uh, workers and peasants who came into cities from living in the provinces and villages were located in in rooms or sometimes a couple of families in one room or there'd be families living in the corridors, kitchens. And so a lot of people lived in communal flats at least until the forties and fifties. And So I had this vision of a communal flat and and the washing line and the kitchen the stove and just a, a feeling of fear. And which I guess is something that has Stayed in my um, in my epigenome, and particularly I know that my great grandfather, who worked in the Ministry of Food uh, Supply during the war, he was he was deputy minister. There was a lot of fear of, and and I think there were lots of there was a lot of fear in everyone's families, really.
1: Oh, indeed, um, I mean, that was that was Stalin style, wasn't it?
0: Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, people fear was dis- what
1: made things work. yeah. Yes.
0: And and people disappeared uh, at night, and nobody asked questions. Anyway, I'd be interested to hear how you you'd interpret that.
1: Well, I think you're right. I think there's no question that fear and anxiety in in mothers changes the sensitivity of children, makes them more anxious, more vulnerable. Uh, certainly, so at least through one generation. And as you mentioned, with you know, we've got evidence now that you can have epigenetic changes through fathers as well over over multiple generations um, so i think it, it's 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 plausible in a biological sense but of course in a psychological sense it's you know you it's also part of your your you know your family narrative isn't it i mean i guess your your grandfather was essentially at the you know his survival depended on on the party and if he transgressed and found de- found evidence you know, in his scientific work that didn't fit with the communist narrative, he was likely to have lost his job and maybe his life. So it was, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's completely credible that you've got these two yeah, I mean, just, from,
0: from what I understand, he died when I was three years old. He, he, the attitude was that you make one mistake and you disappear. And, uh, and, and also, uh, you know, particularly because he was in charge of food, it was, it was an, a, a not um, acceptable to make a mistake, particularly during the, the war the Great Patriotic yes. War. So that, that, that must have been a lot, a lot of fear that somebody lived with. Yes. I,
1: I wouldn't have wanted to do a that job, Fucking tell you. <laughs> um, and
0: then I guess the, the only other one I would mentioned, which was really interesting, is that, you know, I'm somebody who likes to be in control and I know that it affects negatively a yes, lot of things yes. in my life and by God, one, uh, one, uh, one of the ceremonies, I lost control. <laughs> I was in this this sort of black void, falling and falling and falling, and
1: uh, but you okay. survived. And this is the point. This is this is exactly the point. You survived. We we, we we you didn't fight it. I mean, one of the things we've learned from our our therapeutic sessions with with various different uh, people with different diagnoses, if you. have Fight it, if you resist it, you don't get the benefit in your mm. And it's very hard for
0: me yes. not to fight it because I am someone who likes to be in control very, very hard. So it was a really, really important, and a very good
1: lesson for me. And the lesson is that you can lose control and come back not only, you know, alive, but maybe better because you can lose control. You're, you know, you can survive without controlling everything.
0: First thing I wanted to ask you was, and I, I know this... This is a bone to pick that a lot of people who work with, with um, shamans and healers have with the likes of yourself and Robin and, and people who just do science. It's the, it's the neglect of the, sort of the historical healer shamanic aspect or particularly ayahuasca and DMT. How, how do you see that? What's your, what's your view of, of, of yeah. how do you and, and also can, can, can it somehow be integrated?
1: You say? Yeah. So, how how does how do modern neuroscientists think about the historic and indigenous um, use of these drugs? Well, the first thing I I say is I'm extremely grateful for all the work that's been done over the last seven thousand years, and, and I always start all my talks on psychedelics by making that point and making the point that. It, they've been part of human experience for a while. We know that the very first representations of psychedelics are the um, mushroom carvings in the um, in the caves in in, in um, Algeria, which go back five thousand years BCE. Uh, we also know, and, and I think we've got to give a lot of credit to the ancient Greeks. They worked out that a, a cocktail of alcohol, wine, and the weak psychedelic lyturgia in in ergot was a very powerful way of being creative and the Illusinian mysteries were um fueled but for, for hundreds of years they were the Greeks celebrated art dance theater music using psychedelics as part of their uh uh to, to Part of this sort of to promote their, their right mental state and i think it's extremely you can make the case and i do all the time that the greek culture which of course ended up you know driving lot most of the modern western culture in terms of things like mathematics like logic like philosophy as well as art the the, the flowering of intellectual growth in in ancient greece over over you know 1500 years at least was associated with the use of psychedelics and maybe psychedelics um you know basically underpinned that in which case they underpin western society we also know in hindi we don't know in hindi you know, in indian in hindi Hindu religion it's very likely that soma the drink that uh was thought to have uh, generated these rather interesting images of multi-armed gods etc was probably a, a cocktail of cannabis and magic mushrooms with semaphidra so, so psychedelics have been around for a very long time. They've probably had a, a phenomenal impact on human development, human culture, human thinking. We're one of the very few cultures, one of the very few periods in history where we've tried to eliminate that. And we've specifically tried to eliminate them because they make people challenge the role uh, the of strange and you know, more militaristic and perhaps over-competitive and over-commercial way in which, you know, we've been running our lives the last two, three hundred years.
0: That was a preview of Brave New World. You can hear the whole show and listen to previous episodes by searching Brave New World Evening Standard in your podcast provider.